Can we just focus on the asset, please? The asset? Look, I get it. You're in charge out here. You got to make a lot of tough decisions. It's probably easier to pretend these animals are just numbers on a spreadsheet. But they're not. They're alive. I'm fully aware they're alive. You might have made them in a test tube. But they don't know that. They're thinking, I got to eat. I got to hunt. Welcome to To the 90s and Beyond. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews all the way back from the mid-1990s. 1996 is when I started reviewing films online, and you can find all of my written work there at that website, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I want you to check out the link to the other podcast that I do that is very similar to this one, although it's a little more contained into the decade from which I'm covering, with a few exceptions. It is called Around the World in 80s Movies. You can find the link to that at my website, quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the fourth part of this series, looking at the Jurassic Park films, or maybe Jurassic World, I guess, for the more recent trilogy, because we're going to start off with the first of the Jurassic World movies that came out in 2015, And although it is a sequel to the Jurassic Park films, it tends to be considered more of a reboot offshoot series with some incorporation of those old films as well. It's kind of its own thing. PG-13 rated, it does have intense sequences of science fiction, violence, and peril. The runtime is two hours and four minutes. The main stars are Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard, Ty Simpkins, Nick Robinson, Vincent D'Onofrio, Irfan Khan, Jake Johnson, Omar C, B.D. Wong, Judy Greer, and uh, a whole lot of others are in this cast. The director is Colin Trevorrow, and the screenplay credited to Trevorrow, as well as Derek Connolly, Rick Jaffa, and Amanda Silver. Now, before I get into talking about the uh, the nuts and bolts of Jurassic World, I kind of have to go back all the way to when they were talking about it being Jurassic Park 4 for a decade prior, because as you know... From 2001 to 2015, that's a long road to coming up with a follow-up to the first three Jurassic Park films. Amid the lucrative theatrical run of Jurassic Park 3, Universal execs were pushing for a fourth entry. Joe Johnston, though, he was emotionally and creatively drained. He had a very tumultuous experience directing Jurassic Park 3. He said he might cheerlead from the sidelines, but they would probably have to do the fourth film without him. Now, he wasn't the only one who was feeling drained after doing Jurassic Park films. Whether they were lucrative or not, if the creative talent behind the franchise were going to spend up to 16-hour days over three years working on another film, they felt it was going to require a story idea that everyone involved believed in and was enthused to make. So in 2002, a little bit after the uh, theatrical run of Jurassic Park 3, Its producer, Steven Spielberg, he felt he had an idea that was worth coming back for. He called it the best idea that he had since 1993's Jurassic Park. An idea that he kicked himself 
he said, for not using for part three instead of what he went with. This was born from this mental image that he retained since he read Crichton's book, and it involved a chase scene between people on motorcycles and ensuing velociraptors. Now, he tried to include that scene in the last two sequels, but he ran out of time to include it. But now he had a new spin on that idea that he liked even better than that. And it involved his vision of this man on a motorcycle who is not being chased by velociraptors, but rather he was leading a group of trained velociraptors on kind of a, a fox hunt. And he could use these velociraptors as part of a military operation to take out such unsavory types like drug lords and kidnappers and other thuggish criminal types. Spielberg had his production house Amblin Entertainment develop this story, which incorporated other leftover ideas from prior films, as well as Crichton's two novels. Sam Neill, he was asked if he would like to come back to fulfill the final option on his three-picture contract. He agreed to return, but he wanted the next film. If he was going to come back, he wanted it to be set away from the islands. He wanted to see a little bit more updating. Didn't want to do the same thing over and over as they did in the first three films. Maybe a little bit toward the end of the second film, a T-Rex and civilization destroying Walmarts, maybe make it a more of a satirical commentary on modern times. Spielberg did agree. He wanted to get away from the islands. He wanted out of the jungle. He wanted to get it finally to the mainland and actually see dinosaurs in the United States, even though he had dabbled with it in the final third of The Lost World. Now, for the script, after David Kep, he was asked, he declined to return. Spielberg decided he was going to take a, a much more fresh approach with the fourth film. His first hire was a screenwriter named William Monaghan. Monaghan was not very well known, but he was definitely gaining a name for himself when he had shopped around his unproduced screenplay for something called Tripoli, which Spielberg found very impressive. Monaghan took over and he came up with story treatment as well as started writing a script which injected a little bit more of a comedic approach to the franchise and a number of colorful child characters that he compared to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory the movie from the early 70s. Now, the initial premise that Monaghan was working with involved several dinosaur experts. He thought it should include Alan Grant or maybe also Ian Malcolm, depending on the interest level of the actors in returning. They would be sent to one of the islands, at least briefly at the beginning of the film, to find out that the dinosaurs have been multiplying very quickly, escalating their threat and something has to be done to try to slow down because they had started expanding into Central and North America in the mainland. Desperate measures lead to the eventual mixing of DNA of the dinosaurs with humans to create hybrids that could be stronger and smarter than your typical dinosaur, enough to take down these migrating dinosaurs once and for all. Sam Neill, he was going to come back. He did push for Kira Knightley, who was somebody he had worked with for the BBC's Dr. Zhivago. He wanted her to come back to play John Hammond's granddaughter in a small role, provided Richard Attenborough decided also to return. Spielberg did enjoy watching Knightley in Bend It Like Beckham, and he concurred. In fact, he liked her so much in Bend It Like Beckham when he watched it that he also considered her as a possibility to take the lead role in the fourth film. Plans were to once again film in part of California as well as Hawaii, Consultant paleontologist for the first three Jurassic Park films, Jack Horner, he also started 
working on the fourth film, some ideas as far as what new dinosaurs to bring forth. Stan Winston also came on board. He started coming up with new designs, new design concepts for the dinosaurs they wanted to go with. Spielberg, though, when he started reading Monaghan's draft, he felt it did not adequately balance the humor that he had with the action. He felt it was going to need a lot of revising. But Monaghan, he was in a time crunch and he was already obligated to leave working on Jurassic Park 4 for Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven. So if somebody was going to do it, it was going to have to be somebody else. And the postponement there caused Sam Neill eventually to drop out for another obligation, as did Kira Knightley, who took on a lead actress role, not in this film, but in Pirates of the Caribbean. And then talks began with other actors, including Emmy Rossum and Jeremy Piven, for important roles. Spielberg urged Joe Johnston to try to come on board to accept the director's chair yet again. Johnston did admit he was tempted, even though he was still fatigued. He liked the new story idea, but he really just could not commit. Unless maybe fans were clamoring for it, or if Universal offered more money that he could ever refuse. With Johnston iffy, Spielberg then turned to Alex Proyas. Proyas had made a splash with his film from the 1990s called Dark City, but Proyas did have little interest once it was pitched to him. Spielberg did briefly also consider stepping into the director's chair again if he really could find nobody else, but that really didn't last long. He had no real desire to do that. In 2004, John Sayles was hired to revise that Monaghan uncompleted draft. Some compared Sayles' revision, he did a couple of revisions actually, as a campy take on the island of Dr. Moreau. Dinosaurs would make their way to the mainland. They begin attacking the human populace. John Hammond is back. He concocts a scheme for new dinosaurs that would carry a virus that could be brought into the existing dinosaur population that would make them sterile and that would end their existence within a generation. Hammond, though, needed dinosaur DNA to make it happen, and since he had no longer been in charge of the Jurassic team or had any embryos left on board, he decides to hire this soldier of fortune named Nick Harris to travel to Isla Nublar to search for Dennis Nedry's missing cryocan of dinosaur embryos, as we saw him lose in the first film. Harris, though, when he's there, he gets captured by the security team for this corporation called Grendel Corporation, the Swiss company that bought the island from Hammond and is also looking for genetic samples. Grendel Corporation takes Harris to a medieval castle in the Swiss Alps who's run by this uh, mastermind called Baron von Drax. This castle is used as a genetics lab for crossbreeding dinosaurs with the DNA from humans because he wants to make them more intelligent, as well as dogs to make them obedient to produce hybrid dino mercenaries. The creatures are controlled using this radio-controlled box, releasing chemicals in their brains that make them docile or fueled by rage, depending on the mission. Grendel then offers Harris the job of becoming the trainer and leader of the five hybrids that they've created, for which he gives nicknames based on people in ancient Greek history and mythology, Achilles, Perseus, Orestes, Spartacus, and Hector. These dino-human canine hybrids wear armor and they carry automatic weapons. Yes, they can fire machine guns before going on special forces missions, Dirty Dozen style, to take down terrorists, kidnappers, and drug lords, and things get dangerous eventually when the hybrids decide they no longer want to be enslaved by this corporation. Now, Sales' revisions 
did not really satisfy Spielberg in the end. They were just a little too distant from the real science and adventure of Jurassic Park. So Spielberg felt another overhaul was necessary. And after pushing the release date to the summer of 2006, things started stalling out again for another time. Until Johnston did say he was ready to take on the fourth film. He finally came around. He decided to coordinate with consulting paleontologist Jack Horner on a new script direction, and this one was going to strive much more for accuracy instead of fantasy with the Spielberg premise. Horner surmised that dinosaurs, had they not gone mysteriously extinct, would have evolved eventually into a humanoid race from intelligent species like the Trudons, as found in Jurassic World, the game. They didn't need to be some sort of genetic hybrid. They might eventually come to exist. Unfortunately, though, for this premise, Spielberg thought that this was way too much into scientific explanation, rather than that mix of adventure and action that he was looking for, and that would probably make for some pretty lackluster cinema from the Jurassic Park fans. So he told them to continue trying, try to make it more adventurous. While they worked on another script, Spielberg decided to concentrate on the fourth Indiana Jones film, and then Jurassic Park 4 was pushed then to a 2008 release date. Laura Dorn did get the call to return. She was planning on coming aboard. Richard Attenborough, however, was retiring from acting. He had just suffered a stroke, which rendered it pretty difficult to speak or walk, and he just wasn't going to be available. The Writers Guild also decided to strike in 2007, and that prolonged additional delays. And then with the deaths of Stan Winston and then the original author of Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton, in 2008, Spielberg then decided to ponder whether maybe the franchise should just die with them. But in 2009, rumors stirred yet again. Johnston decided he was going to continue trying to return He announced a new story direction for this new trilogy of all new characters and locations, but still, by 2010, yet again, it went into limbo when Johnston decided to bow out to make Captain America First Avenger for Marvel and Disney. Now, stuck on where to go, late in 2011, Spielberg decided he was going to start brainstorming ideas with somebody else, with screenwriter Mark Protosevich, who he had been collaborating with on an attempted remake of the South Korean film called Old Boy that was intended as a vehicle for Will Smith, but that ended up getting scrapped because of rights issues. They were going to try to reboot the Jurassic Park series using these new technological advancements in visual effects that were spearheaded by 2009's Avatar. Spielberg was much happier with the new direction taken in the storyline, using the Protosevich ideas into his own, and then in 2012, Spielberg commissioned a screenplay with the married screenwriting team for Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver. Now, Spielberg hired them because he loved Rise of the Planet of the Apes' respect for the older film series from the 70s, as well as its ability to entertain a new generation that was completely unfamiliar with those old films, especially in the way that their new series had a perfect balance of adventure and science. Jaffin Silver incorporated Spielberg's main premise. There was going to be a fully operational park that had been open for many years. A dinosaur would, at some point, break loose. There was an ex-military velociraptor trainer who hunts for the rogue dino. And then there are visiting children in the rampaging dino's path. Spielberg and the screenwriting duo did spend about a year going over all of these story elements and honing them collaboratively into what they wanted into their script. 
They retained the use of trained raptors to try to take down drug lords by the hero called Vance in that original screenplay. The story would start in China, where dinosaur DNA was cultivated into additional dinosaurs, and then that technology was passed around the world. Hybrid dinosaurs start getting larger and louder when with more teeth. The Diabolus Rex, as it was called at the time, the D-Rex hybrid was eventually created, and it would become the most dangerous creature ever. Now, during this time, after Disney bought Lucasfilm in 2012, they had announced a new Star Wars trilogy, and Kathleen Kennedy, who was the producer for the Jurassic Park films, she left the films to co-chair Lucasfilm after George Lucas had stepped down. Producing partner and Kathleen Kennedy's husband, Frank Marshall, then took over the Jurassic franchise, and he vowed he was going to make it a spiritual sequel to the very first Jurassic Park film. It would be bright, would be optimistic, instead of the dark cynicism that we saw in the sequels. Kennedy, at that time, was pursuing Brad Bird to direct Star Wars Episode Seven. However, Brad Bird, he was busy with Disney's Tomorrowland at the time, and he thought that Star Wars's strict schedule made it impossible to work on both properties simultaneously. So Bird recommended they should hire Colin Trevorrow because he felt that this was a director that shared his sensibilities in how to construct films, that Trevorrow should come in, he should prepare beforehand all of the elements for episode seven, and then Bird would be able to step in seamlessly after he had finished Tomorrowland. After a brief consideration, though, Disney decided this, this idea was just too risky, so they instead handed the Star Wars franchise reins to J.J. Abrams. But in the meantime, Marshall, his interest was piqued in Trevorrow, so he screened Trevorrow's de debut film, Safety Not Guaranteed, noting that it did have an uncanny sensibility that was similar to Bird's style. After calling him, Marshall was very impressed with Trevorrow's intelligence as well as his demeanor and his confidence. He arranged a meeting then with Steven Spielberg to discuss what might Trevorrow do with the next Jurassic Park film if he had free reign to do what he will. Trevorrow emphasized that he thought they should probably return to Amblin's trademark narratives, told more from a children's perspective. Exploring the peril of being a child despite the guardrails of safety that adults had always tried to build around them. This would be a story full of characters and heroic moments that he, Trevorrow, would have adored when he was an eight-year-old and he was watching Steven Spielberg films for the first time. Spielberg and Marshall were delighted with Trevorrow's ideas. They felt that he was perfectly in sync with what they wanted to achieve with the next Jurassic Park film, and so they hired him in March of 2013 in a move that surprised many that this billion-dollar franchise was going to be entrusted to a relative newcomer. Now, as Trevorrow started working in pre-production, the internet leaks started plaguing the properties. The one that was most detrimental was this revelation that the story was going to concern genetically modified dinosaurs, and fans began generating a lot of negative buzz around this idea. Trevorrow had to publicly try to employ some damage control and assure fans that all of the genetic elements that were going to be in Jurassic Park 4 were going to jibe with ideas from the Michael Crichton novels. Trevorrow did, though, express dismay that audiences now were going to experience story surprises by reading these leaks on their smartphone instead of experiencing the joy of watching them in real time in theaters. So he started to impulsively, every time something leaked, he would change what leaked. For instance, the Diabolus Rex became the Indominus Rex, at least in its name. But eventually, the leaks kept coming out, and he decided to just give up and start a new tactic of imploring the public 
to do whatever they could to not ruin their theatrical experience that would bring them joy and thrills by pursuing all of these spoilers ahead of its release. Now, while Spielberg was enthused about the Jaffa Silver script, he thought that it really didn't need much modification. Trevorrow, as he read it, he doubted he could successfully execute some of the more elaborate story elements. He was still a very green director. This was going to be a very sophisticated special effects film to try to pull off. And he felt that if he made a bad Jurassic Park film using somebody else's ideas, that seemed like it was going to be a poor career move. And he started to doubt whether he should really continue. He took his dismay to Spielberg, and Spielberg assured Trevorrow he had carte blanche to make the Jurassic Park film his own, so they decided to postpone the release date another year so that Trevorrow could bring a friend and writing partner, a longtime college friend, Derek Connolly, on board to revise Jurassic Park 4's script to fit more in line with Trevorrow's style. Trevorrow specifically wanted the next film to be original instead of a straight sequel to what we saw in Jurassic Park 3. Spielberg consented, but he insisted that three things remain from the Silver Jaffa script. One was the next film had to be about a park that was open to the public. It would include, as its main hero, a raptor trainer. And the main plot would involve a dinosaur that breaks free and threatens the park and all of the inhabitants within it. Trevorrow agreed, and he started going to work on new ideas for the next film. One of them included an observation on how human interaction with technology had radically changed since the first Jurassic Park, because what seemed miraculous in the world of technology in 1993 was pretty much commonplace in 2015. Humans might similarly take resurrected dinosaurs as much for granted as they would technology as well as advancements in CG effects. The public would be bored, essentially, by seeing the same old, same old dinosaurs. Now, to make sure that what he wanted to do with the next film was plausible, Trevorrow consulted Universal's theme parks on such things as how they operated, including what goes on in the control room. Although in the finished product, they do spice up what goes on in that control room very greatly with a lot of eye candy. The documentary about SeaWorld that came out in 2013 called Blackfish was also a big influence on Trevorrow's outlook on how dinosaurs who might be bred in captivity would feel isolated and they had a lack of socialization that would become dangerous when they had no mother and no exposure to other animals of its own kind. And that would leave them unrooted in any kind of uh, feeling of family or safety net for its conduct. Trevorrow's themes would eventually explore the corporatization of our childhoods, particularly in how anything that we love will eventually become ruined by the need for continued profits, by continuing to generate new ways to spin old ideas. And the irony of what they were creating here was not lost on Trevorrow because he was essentially doing the same with Jurassic Park, a childhood favorite that he had been commissioned to try to inspire a new generation with entertainment. The new direction became very self-aware and metatextual, acknowledging its own strengths and its own weaknesses within the story itself. After three months, Trevorrow and Connolly completed their script with the new title, Jurassic World. The new concept would fulfill John Hammond's dream of a thriving dino park on Isla Nublar. The American nephews of Claire Deering, they replaced the Jaffa Silver Script's Chinese sons of a female paleontologist, Claire would be an expansion of this smaller, more antagonistic character in the Jaffa Silver script called Whitney, who Trevorrow and Connolly felt had the most room for growth in their version of the script. 
Claire would be this uptight corporate type who begins viewing dinosaurs as just a commodity, but by the end of the film, her character will become the heroine herself, developing awe and fear and respect for these animals. Trevorrow wanted Claire to have a defined look. She should stand out just as much stylistically as John Hammond or Ian Malcolm and Alan Grant in those first films. The male lead would be this Navy vet Owen Grady, renamed from Vance in the Jaffa Silver script. Owen would be the facility's behavioral researcher slash talent trainer. He would whisper to velociraptors, which would prove serendipitous when the Indominus Rex would eventually cut loose, threatening everyone within the theme park. Owen Grady trains raptors to be compliant, but Devaro felt that he wanted to keep their instinct, their killer instinct, to attack humans once they would become free from his influence. Unlike the sales script, which had a protagonist very similar to him that was working with his dino military outfit, Trevorrow felt that using dinosaurs in a military fashion was something maybe a bad guy would do, so he'd opted to split the Nick Harris character from the sales script, those ideas, into character traits that would be both in the hero as well as one of the villains, Vic Hoskins, who wants to use the dinosaurs as weapons in the army. New to the island are siblings Gray and Zack. They're visiting their Aunt Claire, the operations manager at Jurassic World, the tourist resort built over John Hammond's Jurassic Park on Isla Nublar, funded by now a mega-billionaire named Simon Masrani. When the public interest in the dinosaurs begins to dip, Masrani decides he has to create bigger and nastier dinosaurs to keep the turnstile spinning at the park. Masrani did learn from a lot of InGen's mistakes, employing a state-of-the-art security system, a military-trained specialist all over the island. The Masrani Global Corporation, which was renamed from Patel in the earlier scripts, they invent new dinosaur hybrids to try to increase traffic, and their latest creation, the Indominus Rex, in Latin, Indominus Rex means untamable king, that would become the most deadly animal that had ever existed on Earth to that date. Bryce Dallas Howard, as far as casting goes, she was suggested by the casting director. She was one of the first people signed to the film. She would take the Claire Deering role. Howard, who had just taken several years off to start a family, already had a working relationship with Spielberg and Amblin. He considered her a member of the Amblin family, in fact. The characterization of Claire was a little bit more problematic when uh, the ideas were released to the public, at least the trailer. Joss Whedon tweeted that Claire smacked of 70s-era sexism. Trevorrow said that this was intentional and that Whedon was basing his assessment on a clip early in the film before her character eventually changes in her story arc. Trevorrow actually based the Owen Grady and Claire Deering relationship on the Jack Colton and Joan Wilder relationship in Romancing the Stone, the obtuse alpha male and the confident woman who's masking her vulnerability, but later becomes the action hero. Bryce Dallas Howard did want Claire to wear boots throughout the film, but she was told that that didn't really fit her character, so Howard decided she was going to wear high heels throughout the film, did ankle-strengthening exercises to run around in those heels all the way to the very end of the film. Now, for Owen... Trevorrow wanted somebody that audiences would find relatable, somebody that they might want to hang out with, share a six-pack of beers with. Josh Brolin was the natural pick, but he eventually proved too pricey for Universal because he had a recent run of box office failure. So given his price tag, he was a little bit too risky. They asked him to come down in price, but he eventually passed. They did decide that they were going to keep him as a backup choice and pay the money if they could find no suitable substitute for a lesser prize. John Krasinski... He was briefly considered before they decided to make the offer officially to Chris Pratt 
on the heels of Guardians of the Galaxy. They thought he might have a breakthrough, and they wanted to ride that with the success of Jurassic Park 4. Pratt consulted animal trainers when he joined on, including Randy Miller, who trained dangerous animals for movies at his ranch in Big Bear, California, called Predators in Action. David Oyelowo, he was sought as Owen's friend and colleague at the uh, Jurassic World, but the role eventually fell to Omar C. Garrett Hedlund, he was also rumored to play a role in the film. B.D. Wong as Henry Wu would eventually become the only returning human character from the prior Jurassic Park films. Jake Johnson, who was a friend of Trevorrow and star of Safety Not Guaranteed, he took a supporting comic relief role as Lowry, who is part of the control room staff. Now, the shoot began in Hawaii before it eventually moved to New Orleans for Big Easy Studios at NASA's center, an abandoned hurricane-damaged Six Flags out there that previously housed other movie productions was used as the Jurassic World environment. Now, after they completed making the film, because post-production did run late, there were no early screenings with test audiences that were given, which was kind of unheard of for a movie that was investing this much money. A cast and crew showing did happen at Skywalker Ranch before its release. It did go over very well, but Trevorrow was unhappy with some of the pacing. He decided to remove one scene entirely, as well as trim several others before he handed it over to a 3D conversion, after which it was not going to be touched at all. Michael Giacchino, he blended the old John Williams score with his new take as the composer, it was very similar to how he blended Planet of the Apes score with the dawn of the Planet of the Apes that he did the scoring for. There was a little bit of controversy in terms of the writer's credit for the film. Trevorrow and Connolly did appeal to the Writers Guild of America, ruling that Jaffa and Silver, who they deemed should get co-credit for the screenwriting, they felt that their script was completely different from the Jaffa Silver script, so much so that the 30% requirement to get credit should not be extended to them. But the WGA disagreed, and rather than continue to fight them, they decided to just share credit with them. When it was finally released, Jurassic World, without competition in its debut week, everybody else decided not to release during the same week because Jurassic World was going to you know, suck up all the oxygen in the room in the theaters. Jurassic World eventually broke the record as the most successful global box office opener of all time with a half billion dollars in its opening weekend worldwide on its $150 million budget. It ultimately, it would become the third highest grossing film of all time, at least for a short period after Avatar and Titanic. The Force Awakens, which came out later that year, did surpass it shortly thereafter, but it's still in the top 10 today. Tomorrow, when it was all said and done, he was asked to come back, but he knew he wasn't going to make another film. He had a lot of other stories he wanted to tell as a director and as a screenwriter, and he felt that the Jurassic Park films just take too much time to make. He did, though, want to retain creative input for the sequels, and he thought that the sequels should follow uh, the example of the Mission Impossible films, that each film would bring in new voices and fresh approaches to each entry, with new directors and new screenwriters all along the way. Jurassic World, I do think, as a film, it does benefit from its distance from the original film. It really only had to be more enjoyable than the prior lackluster sequels to really be deemed successful by the fans. Trevorrow and the others involved in the making of the film do wisely avoid piggybacking on those sequels. They ignore the Lost World already 
featuring an attempt at a new Jurassic Park in the United States that proved disastrous. They were just hoping that people forgot all about it, which most people probably did, because it would be absurd that parents would send their kids to a park full of genetically jacked up dinosaurs after it had already been proven that the Jurassic Park parks really could not handle regular dinosaurs twice. What chance did they have with genetically modified super dinosaurs? So Jurassic World, it does play like more like a fan fiction kind of blending with satire. Its plot mirrors the production itself, as I've mentioned earlier. Like the, the theme park operators, the filmmakers really wanted bigger and nastier dinosaurs with this entry to try to pull in crowds. It really is a toothier hybrid of Jurassic Park, although it does incorporate a lot of other popular franchises like Aliens and Predator and Jaws, Indiana Jones, other popular properties all along the way, especially ones that were influenced by Spielberg. And also, like the Indominus Rex itself, Jurassic World, it becomes a Goliath that really cannot be tamed by the inexperienced because if Spielberg failed with The Lost World, one of the greatest directors of all time, what chance does Trevorrow have to make a film as good as Jurassic Park? Well, he doesn't make it as good. The wow factor of Jurassic Park can never be recreated, at least not entirely. So while the fear factor does falter from these cardboard characters and pretty absurd situations. I think the only angle that was left for Trevorrow to take for continued entertainment in the series is really is to poke fun at its own inanity, which he does pretty well here. The performances, they're not really a strong suit, but they never really have been in most of the Jurassic Park films, but they're to be expected in this entry. Comic book dialogue, campy laughs, semi-spoofy frights, it's there just for fun. The dinosaurs anyway in the Jurassic films are the stars so more time really is meant to be spent making them believable at the expense of the characters we can identify with. As long as we believe the dinosaurs are there and they're real, it all seems to work. It is really easy to forgive Jurassic World's flaws because it is a fun headfirst dive into popcorn cinema altogether. It does greatly benefit from that overriding sense of nostalgia. And as I mentioned, it is better than those prior sequels. Had the follow-ups been as good as this film, or maybe if they had never existed, that a lot of the praise that people had heaped on this continuation might have been a little bit lesser, but it does ultimately succeed, at least at restoring interest into a franchise that had been dormant for some time. Now, Jurassic Park, though, it was a meal, and it was served by the finest chefs in the business, Spielberg, Michael Crichton, Stan Winston and all the crew there. I mean, everybody was at the top of their game when they made that film. Jurassic World doesn't have the benefit of all of that talent on board, but it decidedly delivers, instead of fine cuisine, plenty of fast food that is very satisfying for those craving a sloppy, greasy, brain-belch-inducing experience. This really is the brontosaurus burger of cinema. And tasty, it's not good for you, but it definitely does satisfy. So that's why I'm giving Jurassic World three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means I do recommend it for people who like this kind of movie, uh, specifically people who really love the Jurassic Park franchises in all its ups and downs. It definitely will be one of the better ones, probably right up there, ranking right behind second to Jurassic Park in the minds of most. I think for a film critic like me, ultimately the decision to kind of make fun of itself throughout the whole movie at what it's doing, kind of like the first Jurassic Park film did as well, but this one is much more tongue-in-cheek about it, I think serves it well enough to make it a fun entry in the Jurassic series, and that's why, ultimately, I give it three stars out of four. If you have your own thoughts on Jurassic World that you want to impart to me, 
You can find my contact information on my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Instagram, my Facebook page are all there. Email is the best way to get in touch with me if you want me to reply, though. As far as what I'm going to be talking about next week, well, we'll continue on with the Jurassic series with Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom from 2018. And yes, if you heard some of the ideas that I talked about for the failed screenplays for the fourth Jurassic Park film, you will find a lot of what I talked about here. Very similar to ideas that did get churned into Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. So check that out if you haven't checked it out for a while for the next episode here of To the 90s and Beyond. Mm -hmm.